Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For my next episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate, my guest is David Flanagan, who is the CEO of Elm Street Development. David and three partners formed the firm in 1977, uh, then known as NV Land. And in the early 1990s, when NVR, the parent company, went public, David and his partner, uh, Bill Moran, bought out the company and went and formed Elm Street Development. David has developed over 53,000 lots over his tenure in the land development business, in the, primarily in the Washington, D.C. area, but also in Baltimore and down in Richmond as well. NVR, the home builder, is still their largest customer, but their predominant business is selling to the national home builders once they buy raw land and title it and build out the finished lots, typically. They've separately started Craftmark Homes, which is their home building entity, and the Elms, which is their apartment development entity. And they've built many homes and developed many apartment communities in that period of time. David is, uh, has a strong appetite for risk, and, but understands it and is able to manage and mitigate it as land development is perhaps the, the most risky of all the sectors in the real estate building business. So without further ado, here is David Flanagan. Welcome, David, to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. So David, your current role as CEO of Elm Street, tell me a little bit about that and what you're doing today and how you're looking at things and what your role is at the company. In general, I'm trying to uh, give the support that all our folks need to keep the organization rolling and doing good new communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, new projects. So it's uh, it varies day to day what my activities are. It's basically overall sort of guidance to some extremely talented and experienced individuals that are here. So you more or less an overseer of, of other people or are you actually out in the front end looking at deals and, and bringing business in as well? Once again, my days vary. I do some of that, but in general, I'm just uh, a cheerleader. Sure. And uh, uh, organizer and motivator, but I'm uh-huh. certainly not uh, not doing a, a whole lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's go back to uh, the start here. Where did you grow up? And uh, tell me a little bit about your family life growing up. Okay, uh, I was born in the Deep South. That's where my family's were. Mother's and father's family were from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. My father worked for Dupont, and so uh, I grew up in Delaware. I was there for a number of years. So what, in high school you moved there or where you were? We were, I was there from fourth grade to 12th grade uh-huh. in Delaware. And that's yep. a company town. That's a, a big, at that time it, it ruled the state. We were Wilmington? Wilmington, yeah. Yep. And mm-hmm. so everything was DuPont. And uh, so I got yep. a feel for what the big corporate world was. And it was not a bad, bad upbringing, upbringing and good experiences. 
what influences did your parents have on you based on your life today? You know, good foundation. I love bringing fairly straightforward. Uh, you have little, siblings? Little class. I have two brothers and one sister. Mm-hmm. I'm third in the pecking order. Okay. And um, yeah, we were the typical leave to beaver family. So your father worked for DuPont. Was he in sales? Was he a research guy? What, what uh, his, his, uh, his degrees were in physics. He had an um, undergrad and graduate degree in physics. Mm-hmm. And he was doing um, research and some production things for uh, some new products up in Delaware mm-hmm. and um, for DuPont. And um, always doing some interesting things. And then he got transferred out down to Texas to the Ship Channel for, with, with uh, DuPont. And that same time I went to college. Was his was his employment influential to you? I mean, did you like what he was doing? Did that interest you, or was that like, eh, that's not really what I want to do? Oh, I think I learned uh, during that experience. I mean, I think that was a pretty good company taking care of their their employees, but I don't think that it was for me. I saw mm-hmm. the big company, and I thought that that was not the life that I wanted to do. I wanted to try something more entrepreneurial and something smaller. Uh, most of my grandfathers had been um, farmers. Uh, cotton farmers in the Mississippi Delta. Oh, okay. So that's the uh, entrepreneurial sort of you got to make it. Sure. Nobody's going to hold your hand there. So I think that was a little more interesting to me than joining the big corporate world. I could have done the corporate world. I, I certainly had the resume uh, for it, but I just didn't have the, um, I didn't think it was going to be a great fit for me. And so I've been pretty happy with the way things turned out, not having to uh, play as many corporate games. We don't, we try not to have many uh, games here. The roots of your your interest in dirt or in land comes basically from your your grandparents. Then, uh, maybe a little bit. I do like to uh, I do like to grow things, but yeah, they had farms and you know different lifestyle uh-huh. uh, for sure. Uh, being a farmer, but in a lot of similarities, and we're very well weather dependent, trying to get things done. Sure, and I do spend a lot of time watching <laughs> watching the weather weather forecast. Sure, and uh, try and get things in for our shorter. Season and land development versus yeah. the building guys that go all year round. So it's kind of like a farming analogy. Yeah, I mean, we, we need to get in and do our thing uh, when the weather's yeah. good. That's interesting. So you went to Georgia Tech. I did. Uh, did you like it down there? And what, uh, what drove you to go there? Well, I went there because I could uh, get a co-op job. A co-op job is the thing where you go to school a quarter, work a quarter. Mm-hmm. And so you could put your way through school and earn, earn money while you... Uh, got a job in your, uh, in your field. Mm-hmm. So it was good for me for lots of reasons, um, picking up good experience. I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, and I needed the money. So mm-hmm. it was a good fit. Atlanta was a fun town. The experience of an engineering degree in that school was, frankly, brutal. Nothing, uh, <laughs> not much fun. <laughs> I sort of missed out a lot of the, the typical college fun. But Civil we, engineering, is that what you uh, mean? I was industrial. Industrial. A little oh, more general, generalized uh, engineering, yeah. a little more overall um, engineer and do lots of things and was a little bit of a business uh, bent to it. Yeah. I always knew that uh, even going there, it was just a background degree. I always had planned to get a master's in business as soon as possible. So it was part of the sort of master plan I had back in high school to do all that. So I could at that point be uh, prepared to do lots of different things when I got out. And it was it was pretty well-rounded education. I was very happy with it. Engineering is very um, rote. You know, he's got an A, B, C, D, E. Proofs, um, don't, don't believe anything, prove it. Answers in the back of the book. 
and that's great. And then business school is case study, you know, make up a story. Right. Totally different. Um, right. More writing, more um, abstract. But between the two, I think it's a good combination of uh, trying to train your mind, I think, and learn the, some of the basics of the lingo and the, the way to approach things. So you, you got your industrial engineering degree Georgia Tech, did you immediately go to graduate business school or what, did you have a job in between that? You know, I, um, most everybody does go back, uh, go, go, goes to work for several years between the two. Uh, because I co-opted, I had over two years experience. Ah, um, okay. And so I didn't really feel like I'd, and I, I never wanted to be an engineer. So I could have got an engineering job, but I thought that was just going to be um, less productive for me. Mm-hmm. And so um, I went ahead straight to business school and um, I was able to get some financial aid to help me get through. And so um, no regrets. Yeah. So when did the real estate bug hit you? You know, I, I certainly was never thinking I was going to be a builder, developer, or real estate guy, but I became intrigued by it when I was in Atlanta. Uh, the school, uh, George Tech is basically midtown Atlanta. And so I got to watch every day that, you know, all these buildings being built and, you know, Tom Cousins and um, Portman were doing and, and, mm-hmm. um, uh, most of the development in Atlanta was being done by uh, Georgia Tech uh, linemen from the football team in the 50s. Hmm. And so I don't know if you've ever read A Man in Full by yes. Tom Wolf. Well, that's what it that is. Book. It's a Georgia Tech football yeah. lineman. Uh-huh. Now, that's not exactly a great uh, role model for that particular character. But I remember thinking at the time, if, a, if the lineman on the football team can do real estate, I can probably do real estate. <laughs> So you you were just you you were just looking around and you were seeing these buildings and hmm this might be interesting. So you're interested more in you know hard assets as opposed to trading bonds or doing you know that kind of thing from a business school standpoint. Well, business school um, I certainly you know consider that uh, certainly it's a more direct path to financial success with mm-hmm. going to New York and and doing um, something with investment banking or right. the Wall Street crowd. It didn't completely fulfill, though, some of the things I wanted to do. And I think that much more, I want to be much more tangible product. Right. But the biggest thing probably was the fact that um, you got to jump into real estate and do all aspects of business. So I don't care if you're tiny, you're still doing a little bit of production, a little bit of marketing, you know, a little bit of sales, a little bit of accounting, a little bit of finance, and you don't have to wait for 30 or 40 years in your career to get to the tip top of a big company so you can play with all those aspects. Mm-hmm. So I, that was very, very appealing to me to be able to jump in the first day and, and be a project manager and dealing with all aspects of business. That turned out exactly as I liked. So when you came out of your, when you got your MBA, where what was your first opportunity? What was your first job? Um, actually, uh, this job, same thing. I've been in the same company now, same job Basically doing the same thing now for 40-something years, 42 or so three what years. what attracted you to here? Well, at, th- at that point, during school, I was looking at lots of different uh, industries. But um, uh, once again, with the real estate thing, I sat in on one class and, and didn't have room for uh, it. Was a, they were just getting a real estate program going. So I audited a real estate class, the first one. I didn't, wanna, I didn't think it was serious enough to actually waste the course. So I just audited it and found it fascinating. And then I took the second course for credit and um, got more hooked and thought that would be something that would fit me very well. My second year, 
I was looking at lots of different jobs and I took lots of different interviews with different size corporations and different fields and thinking that a technical uh, degree and a business degree, you can do lots of different things. But uh, was, I was pulled to the real estate part of it. Um, so at that point, uh, just a few companies would come in to interview for mm-hmm. real estate jobs. But I had a couple offers. And, um, but the one that interests me was, and, and um, what turned out, was um, Steve Cumby and Dwight Shar had just gotten together and set up a, a teeny, tiny land What year company. was this, David? This was in, uh, they set it up in the fall of 77. Dwight had um, resigned from Ryan Holmes, and he had a non-compete uh, that lasted three years, I believe. Mm-hmm. And Steve was a resort developer down in Atlanta, and the two of them had hooked up to form a partnership, and they had found two pieces of property. Uh, they needed a project manager for the one in Richmond. So Steve was a graduate of North Carolina, so he came down and interviewed and um, offered me the job. So. Uh, that's how I got going, and you know, so you take off your tie and you put on your boots and you go out in the dirt and you um, with all this education and you, you know, you move move piles of dirt around and you call for cut sheets and all the kind of things you need to do to get something built. So I learned that was almost like a trade school. So were you, was years. it kind of on the job training for you? You said here here's the project we're going to start you know start clearing land and getting the thing organized? Was it under control at that time? Or how was, how was your training process at that time? I mean, well, I, I was in, actually, uh, it was a project in Richmond. Yep. And we were selling lots for, finished lots for $9,500 a piece, uh, if you can believe that, uh, to Ryland <laughs> Homes. And Ryland was um, turning around and selling the houses for in the forty-eight dollars to $52,000 a finished house. So uh, we had not one nickel extra to spare. So you had to be very good and uh, it was a good, excellent training ground for maintaining budgets and getting things done on time. And it was so they a, controlled the land when you were you got it. They what? had just started development, and when I came in, and uh-huh. and so um, they were in located uh, in McLean. So I was by myself uh, in Richmond, and so I would talk to Steve uh, over the phone, and so that was an interesting experience too. So I was licking stamps and typing letters and running the bank. So you were alone. Alone, did my own accounting. It was interesting. Uh, interesting. Experience. So they had enough faith in you to leave you alone on a, a site right out of business school to, to do land development at that point. Well, I don't know about that, but they had a choice. <laughs> that was that was the way they were going to get it done. So you really had to learn on the job then yourself, all the little intricacies and dealing with the the contractor and you know the the, the people doing the doing the clearing and the underground work and all that. You had to figure it out yourself. Then. Yeah, and actually that was pretty uh, stimulating because you basically are a complete rookie trying to yes. deal with folks that have been doing it for 30, 40 years. Yes. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. So you're trying to think through a couple of steps ahead of of how to get something done on your schedule and at your budget. So, you know, it's actually it was such a good training ground. I think that I tried to, to implement that same type of experience for all the future MBAs that are hired to be the backbone of the organization. Our business is, for our land development, is uh, production-driven. And so if you don't understand the production part and what can go wrong in the field, it's very difficult to do the right analysis or correct analysis of your performance and mm-hmm. is it going to work or not work. So didn't, I don't really trust anybody uh, who hadn't done that to actually go out and try and bring in budgets and get things done. So that's something that we did for everybody. 
in the company going forward as project managers before I would uh, believe what they wrote down on paper for the next deal. I'm astounded with <laughs> the fact that Steve and, and Dwight just said, here, here's the site, start managing the project right out of school. That just without any, okay, let's sit down. I'm going to give you this, you know, we need, these are the steps. This is how we do it and all that. Oh, believe me, they, they, they were um, phenomenally helpful to me, both brilliant uh, businessmen. Of course. And um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so, you know, again, tremendous learning curve. If you think about it, uh, at that point, I was 24 and Dwight was 34 and Steve was probably 30, 31. And then, you know, we were able to, a couple of years later, you know, uh, Bill Moran joined, who was the fourth of us, to, then um, we sort of set up the whole NV structure right. at that point. So Bill and I took off running, at that point it was called NV Land, Dwight ran NB Homes, and Steve ran NB Commercial. And so the three of them were partners in everything, and I was just partners in the NB Land aspect. And then sort of, you know, the rest is sort of history. You know, NBR uh, is now, they're the best national builder in the country. Um, so it's, uh, it was, it was a, been a wild ride, but a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun. So, so, so even, you know, fast forward, Elm Street Development is actually the same tax ID number for the company I went to work for back in 1978. And we just renamed it to Elm Street Development back in the late 80s to avoid some other conflicts with when Dwight went public. So let's, let's talk about the evolution of the company and also how you broke off from NVE and, and why and all mm-hmm. that, and then how you weathered some of the downturns that we had in the early 90s and, and then in the late 2000s. But let's, let's focus on the 90s if we can for now. So. Uh, well, the 80s, uh, just, that's when, um, when NVR, excuse me, at that point it was uh, NV Homes, acquired Ryan Homes. Right. That was obviously a very major. Uh, that was a public, those were, pri- they were both private companies at the time? When that uh, I think uh, at that point, uh, NV Homes was a master limited partnership traded if I believe that's the case. But as soon as that occurred, there was a lot more scrutiny on Dwight running a public company and having ownership in a land company that fed that public company uh, lots. And so uh, he made the decision at that point to keep things super clean. He would get out of our uh, land development business. And he did that. We that still was what year now? Probably 88, 87. Okay. You know, to this day, we're still... I think supply more lots to him and NBR than anybody. And they are our biggest customer. So not our only customer, but our biggest customer. So the relationship goes way, way back, obviously. Clearly. So it was basically that it was the conflict of interest or the, the feeling that you wanted to keep arm's length that, that you separated, basically. Yeah, and, 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 and Dwight had also set up uh, inside of um, – the public company, a land development company. Oh. I don't know if you remember, uh, it was called NVR Development. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that they uh, went into bankruptcy because they, they made a lot of bad land deals, in my opinion. That was uh, a reason. And so it was confusion in the marketplace what the difference between NV land and NVR development was. So I we see. said when the buyout occurred with Dwight, we just changed our name to Elm Street Development. And we got that name because we happened to be working on Right around the corner on Elm Street. That's uh-huh. how clever we are. 
There it is. Still, uh, still got the same name. So it's interesting, just a side story about Mr. Shar. I met with him in the late 90s, and um, I had the opportunity to, to list South Riding, which is a very large land project out in Loudoun County. And I sat with him, and he said, you know, John, we just don't, we don't buy land now. We're not in the land business. We had a few problems a few years ago, but we had to reorganize the company. And I thought that was kind of an interesting statement. It ended up, I lost the deal and Toll Brothers ended up taking the project uh, at that time. So, What's well, a business strategy for uh, the national builders that all the other national builders, I think, are very envious of NBR and their land position, their land strategy. Mm-hmm. And um, they've been able to keep that discipline. And that's why they are the darlings of Wall Street in the home building area. It's because of the minimal risk they have in land. Versus the other guys, which are, have, have uh, a tremendous amount of land on their on their books, they have to. And the, the, the there's a there's a there's a reason we can make money in, in Elm Street. There's a risk associated with land. Of course, it's very real. Yes. And so uh, NBR pays to us a margin to have that risk not accrue to them, and or minimize for to them. And so if you can manage things correctly and understand the risk involved with raw ground, which is probably the highest in the real estate business. If you feel comfortable and figured out ways to manage that risk, there's a nice, a nice business with some margin there. Absolutely. Well, I want to get into that a little bit further, comparing you know, the land development business with the home building business. And it's a different, it's a totally different flow of capital and how and managing risk. And it's interesting you mentioned the public companies or the darlings. It seems to me because of the volatility of the economy and, and affecting the home building sector that being a public company can be a challenging aspect because it's so cyclical sometimes. So I imagine that managing your balance sheet is really critical there to, to manage through the downturns where the demand for housing dips quite considerably. What's your, and since you now have a home building company, how did, uh, I assume since your diversification now, you're in the home building, you're in apartment development, mm-hmm. and you're also in the property management now. Correct. So Correct. I'm guessing that your evolution as a company is because you wanted to balance your, your balance sheet a little bit more as far as flows and cyclicality of the marketplace. Is that part of this, the thinking that, there? Uh, it is. I think that it's, uh, those are our areas right now, land development, apartments, and home building. A lot of it's driven by uh, minimizing risk and trying to be able to survive the, um, the recessions. It's, I'd say, typically in 10-year period in the land development business, uh, two years are so great, any idiot can make a lot of money. Uh, six years are fairly, it's a fairly normal business. And two are so bad, you just can't make it up. And so it's uh, a lot of what you do to survive in, in real estate in general, but land development specifically is surviving those two years out of 10. And if you are very lucky and very good, you are not just uh, surviving those two years, you're taking advantage of, the, of other people's uh, difficulties during those two, two years. Exactly. So as you broke away from Dwight Shar and his balance sheet and opportunity to, how did you finance your, your situations going forward, your, your equity and how you secured land and all those things on the acquisition side, and then your 
then the evolution, the growth of your in your companies from the land development into the other businesses. Talk about that a little bit if you can. Sure. Um, in general, uh, we've always used internal equity. We've had very uh, minimal experiences trying to go out for capital. Uh, found that it's um, extremely expensive until you have to answer somebody else. And getting back to that, I don't really want to do that. And you're a high-risk business, and you don't want the, the widows and the orphans with you. So Bill and I would always say, okay, we screwed up, lost a ton of money, so what? Let's go to the next one. And we didn't have to explain ourselves or feel terrible. It was our equity, and some things work and some things don't work. So we're very comfortable with that. And what they did, it limited our um, growth, and it limited our what we could do. But that was okay because you're – it's not just about equity. It's about debt capacity. It's about opportunity in the marketplace. It's about the people you have that are that are up and operating. So there's lots of wheels on the car rolling, mm-hmm. uh, and you got them all rolling same speed. So while we were uh, making money and keeping retained earnings to fund the equity, then that allowed us to have a better balance sheets to be able to borrow from com- typically commercial banks. And we were also hiring uh, good folks and training them. And obviously, this is a very good market here. So we kept those wheels all rolling about the same speed. So we really never, never really hurt for equity. 80s were very good for us, you know, the Reagan years. And then 1991 hit. And um, that was a um, crushing two years mm-hmm. that uh, anybody in the real estate business during those time, that time frame uh, would never forget. The banks were coming to you to call their their loans back and things like that, right? Well, it was just such a, a crazy time. Um, regulators jumped down the bank's throats yep. and they closed. Uh, I think at that point we had 17, 19 lenders and uh, we lost probably two thirds of them through either um, RTC. RTC takeovers, mergers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was unbelievably brutal and ridiculous what the federal government caused, and I, I'll put it on them. They didn't have to do that, uh, but with the SNL scandals and other things, they they wanted to handle it that way, so that caused uh, uh, the biggest transfer of wealth this country's ever seen. Nobody ever talks about, but it was uh, fairly staggering in 24 months how many dollars moved around, well, sure. and uh, it was not necessary. Like this, uh, compared to, they did learn something in 2008. It was not the same uh, crackdown and gave everybody a little more time. Real estate is an is a illiquid asset, so you just can't turn it on and off with, with a switch. You have to give a little more time. And, and that's why this, this last recession was so much more gentle, longer, but less uh, chaos. Right. No, no RTCs running around and no collapse of um, the industry as we know Liquidity. It. Yeah, yeah, it was completely different. Different, and, yeah. and it was funds waiting around for the RTC kind of meltdown to occur. But because the regulators had a little more census time, not only uh, for or bill developers, but actually for the SNLs and the banks, not putting as much pressure. They didn't want to do what they did in 1981, in my opinion. They did it because you know their the federal uh, overseer was beating them around the head every day, telling them to do it. Yeah. And so it was, uh, it was a uh, Absolutely idiotic. We we got through, but we, you know we had at that point we had to call up our folks doing our work and say well, we had no money because the loan commitment we paid to that bank they're no longer answering the phone. RTC is picking up the phone and saying your bank's out of business. 
So the commitment letters and uh, the deeds of trust we had were meaningless. So it was a, it was, a tough time. So it was a, it was a tough time. So what did, did you and your partner look at each other and say, I'm wondering if we can continue here or were you, uh, was it not at that point uh, in, this, in that situation? Well, uh, we never really exactly had the opportunity to say let's quit because we were already, you know, in, in so far in, there was no, uh, there was no way out except for work it off. Right. And work harder mm-hmm. and work smarter. So no, there was never any opportunity to, to uh, say, I think I want to go in this another business. We were we were uh, personally guaranteed on a staggering number amount of debt, and somehow well, we survived. Most people in the land development business at that time pretty much had to retire, or I mean, there were several bankruptcies around town at that time. And, and, oh, quite a few, yeah. quite a few people lost houses, lost houses, and but everything else, it, it, like everything else, you do the best you can. You be as honest as you can. You tell people what's going on, and whether it's our bankers or our accountants or our uh, our employees, you just be as honest and straightforward as you possibly can. And when you do that, uh, people understand. So we had most of our contractors, I told them, you can either keep working and we'll pay you when we can, or you can stop because we have no money. And almost 100% kept on working because they believed in us. That's great. Well, it was uh, actually, it was phenomenally rewarding. Where the world is falling apart, you found out who your friends were. And um, I was very proud of the industry doing that so people would keep working and sure enough we got around when we started uh, at that point we were doing cash flows off of lot settlements and we would just pay people as we got money so it was as as if all of our contractors and suppliers became our bank or your partner in essence to um, some extent because when you sold a house they get you know so in essence we were all banking on you making these deals <laughs> So we're gonna we're gonna keep working to to make that happen in essence. So. Yeah, and they believed us. If they thought we were right. not going to pay them when the things got better, then yeah. they wouldn't. Have. But That's I think we had earned that reputation. And um, you know, there's a lot of ways to survive, but ours was basically let everybody know exactly where we are and um, uh, deal with the best we can. And we learned a lot during that that time frame. And and, and take things we are uh, still doing today in our business to better prepare. So we swore at that time we would not um, ever be in that position again. And so we worked even harder uh, with the risk minimization strategy for our business. Uh, We started doing more uh, income properties, apartments. Uh, We were already in the business a little bit. We started doing more. The real estate recessions, those two years out of 10 that are bad, it's usually about cash flow. Most of the deals don't go so bad that you're throwing the towel. Most of it's just about can you survive the cash flow? And so if you have assets that are throwing off cash to provide carry on some of those assets, the banks will tend to work with you. And if you're honest and working hard and trying to deal with a a bad situation. So when you have income properties, you have that cash flow. Land goes to zero. Uh, Not only does it go to zero, you you typically interest rates are higher. So it gets worse than zero. That's a very uh, illiquid asset during a recession. And it throws off no cash. So you have to have uh, some diversification uh, of some income properties. And so that's, that's one of the things we started doing. We also then had a home building company set up. Kenny Mullen was, uh, at that point, was one of our regional managers. And he had home building experience through NB Homes. And um, uh, we, through Ken and his efforts, we set up uh, Craftmark Homes. Uh, one is an opportunity to start a building company at the worst part of the recession which is actually a good time to start new businesses. 
and and other two was to be able to have a uh, conduit for us to be able to work out of of land deals where the builders had pumped out on us or whatever, mm-hmm. and to be able to go in and and um, drink our own Kool Aid a little bit and get out of deals. So, craft market started turned into a lot more than that. But that was the one of the reasons. Those are the two reasons to, to really um, start that business up. So both those two were more important things uh, for us business-wise from 91. So that was your opportunistic play at that time, the downtimes, to be able to create those businesses to give you a little more balance in your, in your portfolio as far as uh, income production, et cetera, for the company then, basically. Yes, I think so. Um, it, it, uh, it allowed us to um, be a little more balanced. We're already doing a lot of things to minimize risk during downtimes. We think we know how to do that in terms of diversifying by product types inside the land. Product types we develop for townhouses, condos, high-end, low-end, far-out, close-end. We diversify by county and city. Counties will go into moratorium. If you're in just one county, you're out of business. We would do as much as we could to, to diversify so that different parts of the business shut down in recession more than others, mm-hmm. so that something would be going and providing some cash flow to us. That's worked out well. We do uh, still try and have as many entitlements in hand as we can before we close on a piece of property and carry as little as possible so that if recession does happen and you don't have all your entitlements, you just can, can say goodbye to your deposit and, uh, and not, not close. That, that leads to another question. So if, if you are buying entitled land, preferably, would you consider a situation that's raw? And, and what, you know, what characteristics of a raw piece relative to an entitled piece would be important to you if you were to make a, make a play for that today? Well, typically... Or anyway, any day. Yeah, typically what we do is we, we contract for a piece of property, and our expertise is in general is the entitlement process. You know, we're, we're big time developers and we put in sure. a lot of streets, but our real specialty is the community creation and entitlements. And so um, that's an art, not really a science. And so uh, most of the things we, we contract for, we have a certain period of time in our contracts to get those entitlements. And then we call it so the market's still there. So this there. is raw land usually. Raw, yes, raw land. And so we don't tend to buy things or put things under contract that somebody else is already entitled. At that point, it's, it's acceptable uh, for the national home builders to go up and gobble up that asset when the, that much of risk has been taken out. And they're very scared of entitlement risk. But when someone, other developer, or someone has taken it through the entitlement risk, they can be a much stronger player in buying that asset. So it's very rare for us to win a bidding contest on a piece of property for something that's not fairly screwed up. So the home builders will do their own finished lots. They'll they'll take a, a piece that's entitled but not built and build out the lots themselves then. They will. NVR won't, but the rest of them certainly will. And so they'll staff up, and in the next recession, they'll get rid of their land, and they'll fire everybody that's in their <laughs> land apartment. So it's not exactly a sustainable business strategy, but they've used it for years, and you just don't want to, don't, don't want to go to work for a major home building company in their land department, uh, land development department. Uh, because uh, you just, there knows two years out of 10, you're, you're out of a job. So it's, it's so us, is, it is uh, getting the time. Now, you asked me, when would we buy a raw, raw piece of property and close? Uh, actually, we just got one. Uh, we're going to close. We signed it yesterday. But we're buying at um, maybe 40 cents on the dollar. 
How do you know what the dollar is? Is it just based on other trades in the marketplace or what? Uh, well, you know, with, with our size and our market penetration, we pretty much know what things are worth. And uh, mm-hmm. we can't project what's going to be tomorrow, but we know pretty much what's worth today. Uh, we're talking to all the players uh, weekly, all the national guys. So we know what's worth today. Then you can make some judgments of where we are with the recessions that are coming up, et cetera, or lack of lots and what that's going to do and to the pricing. But if we can get it at a cheap enough discount, and if it's not too big, we will occasionally buy something that's raw, raw. It's much more limited opportunities because most people realize how much more money they will get, they being sellers, if they will just sit still for two years and let us or somebody like us turn the crank and get the approvals and get rid of that risk. But, but, but there, there are opportunities if people need the money or it's a corporate, big corporation. They don't care. It's rounding error. It doesn't matter. So uh, we'll, we'll do some... But it's a much more limited aspect of our business. So where do you see land opportunities today in the marketplace? Uh, the marketplace today is uh, the, it's the worst I've ever seen it in 40-something years. Trying to find the next deal. It's just, just very limited supply. Most recessions we've had that I've gone through, which is three big ones in my career, uh, there's usually been a lot overhang not only of paved lots on the ground, but also paper lots that were already approved. And today, uh, it's just the opposite. So uh, I've never seen it this difficult to find our raw material uh, in terms of uh, land that we can put housing on. And it's for lots of different reasons, but that's where we are. So the big green fields are gone. Right. That fed us for the 80s and 90s and 2000s. It's a very different business. And so... You're looking at more, the green fields today are actually um, old parking lots. They're uh, underutilized, um, FAR, uh, older office buildings, uh, knockdowns. It's just a different kind of game right now. So that's what we're spending more time on. And we're still doing green fields. We're still out in the suburbs doing more than anybody else. We're also spending a lot more time on uh, redevelopment possibilities and trying to do covered land plays while you... Uh, you typically have to buy those. And so if we can get cash flow coming off of a asset that has some cash flow and spend the time to rezone it while you have income coming in from whatever the use is, whether it's a Wendy's or a office building or whatever, right. it gives you the time to go ahead and reposition the asset and get the approvals necessary. So when the time is right and the existing tenants or lease runs up, then you can knock it down and, and, and do something new with it. So you're doing, you're acquiring existing properties now or looking at them for redevelopment into residential use. Then. We are. We are. We bought one uh, just a couple months ago, uh, old office building uh, over in uh, Merrifield. So, yeah, we're doing more of that. Uh, I think that's just, uh, if we don't evolve, we'll be out of business. Of course. Right? So it's not like it's something that I like to do it. It's a lot harder. It's easy when you're competing with the value that a farmer can get off cows. Sure. Well, it's pretty easy to beat that. Yes, but now you got to beat uh, the income stream that that landowner was getting. Property. Commercial, yeah, exactly. Right. So it's, it's much more difficult, and the green fields were easier to get approvals because mm-hmm. you already had the mass plan typically in, in process, and uh, told you what you could do. And in general, the residents that are around it, either nobody there to fight you, or they just moved in their house, and you're building exactly what their what, what their neighborhood looks like. So much easier approvals. Now it is, you know, there's somebody on all four sides of you, and uh, they have an opinion, and 
it's a, a challenge to get things approved uh, and done and, and to make the numbers work. So not whining about it. I'm just saying in general, it's, it's harder than it's ever been to find the next opportunity. And that's what I worry more about when I come to work every day is the next opportunity rather than recessions or the next thing that we have coming up. I mean, that's, that's what it keeps me up. What's interesting is what's changing right now in the single family business. And it's not just here, but everywhere in the country. What I'm hearing is the zoning changes going around in the country. So urban markets now in some markets, Minneapolis and Portland and maybe Seattle, they're eliminating single family zoning in some of these cities. So uh, if that happens in Washington, and I know Montgomery County is at least thinking about it here in, in Maryland. I don't know if there are other jurisdictions around the D.C. area that are thinking that way, but how would that affect your business if that happens? Well, I think that uh, we're actually already, already seeing that occur in terms of what our products that we're delivering to the market. We track every year how many singles, towns, condos we do, multifamily mm-hmm. apartments. Sure. And if you look at that progression over the last 20 years, the percentage of single families has fallen uh, consistently, and the amount of townhouses increased, and multifamily has increased. So I think that we are all heading towards a European model. At some point, our business will be 5% single family, 20% townhouses, and 75% multifamily. And that's not to do tomorrow, but that's certainly where we're he- heading. And our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will much more likely be living in a multifamily structure. And that's just, uh, we need to to learn new tricks to stay in business. And mm-hmm. so that's another reason that I'm more interested in spending more time on our apartments and our multifamily because it's a much more complicated legal strategy, much more complicated to build, much more complicated to design, much more heavily capital intense upfront with all the uh, millions you have to pay in architectural fees and, and zoning changes. So a very different business, but it's challenging and you have to keep learning. And we certainly are not the experts uh, at the multifamily business, but we're you know, we're trying. So adapting from a more of a horizontal to a vertical uh, orientation, I'm sure has its challenges to it uh, to some extent. But you bring some skill sets to the table that other people may not have if they started only in the vertical side. And what aspects of the, of the land business do you think that give you somewhat of an advantage looking at, at the marketplace today, just out of curiosity, if you'd see any that you can think of? You know, we have done so many deals in the, in the marketplace. I mean, I just can't imagine anybody's done more than we have in terms of maybe JVG, but um, in terms of just pure deals. And so we've seen, we've learned a lot about what makes a good deal and not not a good deal. And so we've seen an awful lot. We made a lot of bad decisions. So hopefully we've learned every time we make a bad decision. So I think maybe our strategy of how to approach a deal is helpful, whether it's a a multifamily site or not. So that's probably the advantage that we have. We also have um, been doing this this many years. We've got a pretty good um, uh, reputation and pretty good... um, banking relationships and assets to be able to play in any game right now. Much more comfortable being able to tackle these things that are going to take years to bring to fruition some of these assets that need to turn over. And we couldn't have played in that game 40 years ago, just didn't have the capital to do that. So now we're, we're in a much better position to be able to do deals. We also are comfortable with the long lead time. A lot of folks that come in on their jets from Texas and California, 
don't quite understand how difficult it is to do business there. And I said, you know, they're going to come in and take over the world. It's like, hey, that's great. I'll see you in four years when you get your first building permit. That's actually a, um, a nice level of protection for our business. It's something developers don't usually like to talk about. We just despise how difficult things are. It's good and bad. It's bad because it's so difficult to deal with, but it's good because it stops competition. competition. Hate competition. Competition is brutal. <laughs> brutal, brutal, brutal. We deal with it, but I don't like it. I don't look for it. We look for uncompetitive areas. Right. Well, that makes sense. But it's interesting. You were providing inventory for companies, you know, before in, in the land development. Well, you're still doing it, but you're, instead of that, now you're looking at, you know, delivering your own product, probably more so than you're delivering product for other developers. So your relationships have changed to some extent as who your customers are. You're more settling now to the end user customer as opposed to the builder at this point in, your, in the evolution of your business. Is that, is that a fair statement? Uh, not completely. I mean, I think our still core business is, is selling feeding the, the big guys. Okay. And so, you know, maybe roughly of our efforts, 20% is going to multifamily rentals, roughly. And we're, the home building is, is good, but land development is still our cutting edge expertise, that's still a lot of what we're doing. We're still feeding the big guys and trying to get through the entire process and create nice communities. And so we have many big PUDs going on right now that are doing very, very well. So let's talk a little bit about um, your relationships with, with the local governments around town and how that has evolved over the years and how you see the government perception of your business uh, and how that's changed over time, if it has and uh, how you've dealt with it, just out of curiosity, because being in the, in the entitlement area, that's a major part of your business is dealing with the governments, I would think. Are you talking about our industry or Elm Street specifically? You specifically, and you could say it relative to the industry as well, so a combination of both. Where you're, how you've evolved and how the industry's evolved as well, and how you've addressed it maybe a little differently than some of your competition has. Potentially. Well, in terms of Elm Street, we've been doing this a long time. And so most people know who we are. I think that helps us a tiny bit uh, when we go in and try and get some approvals. Not a whole lot, but they know if we tell them something, and they being the politicians and the playing staffs, that we're going to deliver. And they don't know that from the guy that just got off the airplane. And they don't know it from the guy who already, already screwed them on something else. Mm-hmm. So we go to great lengths and have spent way tons of money trying to protect a reputation and finish things that, that maybe other people wouldn't have finished and, and at great expense to us. So I think we've earned that. We've paid for that. So your philosophy is let's, you know, we, we got to do what we've said, even if we don't make money here or if, you know, in the short term, because your view is long, you know that this is a long game and that the relationship is important over time with this jurisdiction because we're going to do deals. For a long time here. Is that kind of the thought process? That's thing? exactly the process. And um, so, yes, when we, something goes bad, we finish it. It's immaterial to the market or to the politicians or to our bankers or anybody else. Whether we make money or not, that's our problem. Right. And so that's the way we sort of treat it is uh, we've got to finish what we started. And, and we try very, very hard to do that. So I think that's, um, that's how we do in terms of the Elm Street brand. And I think people... We've been dealing in most of these municipalities for many, many, many years, and they live around the corner from something we've already finished. 
where they live in a, a community we've already developed. I think they know, they, they know, we know what we're doing. And when we tell them something, they were not lying. So that's, that's very helpful when we go in for the next deal. Now, in terms of the, the way they view the industry, they, the politicians and et cetera, you know, we're, the land development especially is the real whipping boy because we're the change agent. We're the ones that are overcrowding the schools and clogging up the roads and all the other horrible things we did, right? Of course. Uh, creating all these people. But it's, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we've always been the, in the public perception and, and a lot of the planning perception is being the bad guys, which is always sort of amazing to me that building a house is somehow a bad thing. I think it's incredibly... You're providing a house home for right, someone. Right, right. And we're not creating the people uh, that once we build right. a house. If we built too many houses and nobody moved in, we quit building houses. So it's, it's anyway, it's fairly idiotic. What's happening right this today is two things. One is we have some counties that have gone into the biggest lot down I've ever seen. And we have other things going on for the first time in my career. The Washington Post has finally said, oh, we have a housing problem. They've been crushing our industry for years and years and years right. and years and years, all the able things we did. And now they said, oh, there's not enough housing. Well, duh. <laughs> of course there's not enough housing. Everybody in this bro has been fighting us all along. So finally, this is getting some recognition. Yes, we have a housing problem. And we've, we've been right for 40 years, and they've been wrong. It's like, if you just let us build something, everybody have a much better, uh, better life and have a better price. Of course. And competition is very real, as I said. So the solution to why this is to let's build some more houses and more communities and get some more creative. So it's interesting now we're getting some play from the national media and from the Washington Post, from uh, COG, of all people, mm-hmm. uh, trying to push out some, you know, where everybody says we need X number of units. And uh, the mayor said some things in terms of more, more housing production. Of course. At the exact same time, because the election we had um, a little over a year ago, we have several counties that have just completely, totally rolled up the sidewalks and shut down. So it's just, you can't make it up. It's just, uh, it's amazing. And it'll go that way because it went that way because of where we are in the cycle. The cycle is now over 10 years, almost 12 years since the last recession. So all the anti-everything's get reelected or get elected mm-hmm. and they change all the policy and anything they can do to shut down. And the, the thing they're using today is the school capacity. So right. they've just shut down all new developments. Anyway, it's never boring. It's irrational, almost, some of it. Yeah. That's being kind. Yeah. I think it's calculated what do they need to do to get reelected. So, I mean, that's just my own soapbox. Understood. So, talk about your company philosophy. You've talked a little bit about it, but as far as your personnel, what do you look for in employees? I mean, what, what characteristics are you looking for when you're hiring people? Well, when we were starting out, we had to figure out uh, how does one organize a land development company and how does one tack it. We decided to break our company by geographic area rather than by function. So what I mean is we don't have a marketing department, a production department, an acquisition department. The typical way that the national home builders break up their, their land, land process. Ours is you become an expert in this county, you become an expert in that county, you become an expert in this city. And so what that means is we have to fill our organization with generalists rather than folks that like to specialize. That's exactly right. right. So for us, it was once you made that determination, it was then trying to go out and find people who want to do all aspects of business and are capable of doing all experts, uh, parts of the business. We hired folks we thought could do that. Uh, we gave them training 
and then give them everything they can possibly, everything we can possibly do to help them succeed. And so it starts by hiring just the smartest people I could find. And that's what I did. So you don't want necessarily engineers or architects or, you know, business people. You want kind of a generalist. So you look for a good quality education background, but somebody who can manage, you know, more than one thing at once has a, has a good adaptability and that kind of thing. Is that kind of what you're looking for? Somebody that's- you know, have to have the intellectual horsepower. Right. You, can't, you can't fake that. A broad educational backgrounds. Didn't really care whether they had any experience in real estate or what we did. Right. That was sort of immaterial to me because we're going to teach them anyway. They're putting on boots. They're going outside. Mm-hmm. And they can cut it or they can't cut it. And then we also had to get the right personalities because it's a business where a repeat business is based on doing things with people that are fun. And nobody likes a jerk. So I didn't want any jerks in the organization. So get people that are uh, have good personalities, can work with folks. They can uh, convince sellers to that they're honest and can, are going to deliver. Mm-hmm. And so that's, what ha- that's how we build our company is trying to find folks like that, give them some training, and then get out of their way. That's great. It's very common theme among all the guests that I've had on this podcast. Most people say I, I, this, nothing, you can't teach good, uh, good manners and, and good pe- good. You can you know, teach all the mechanics and all that, but you can't teach people to be good. Our, our business is, is not rocket science. It's just pretty simple, stupid blocking and tackling stuff. You know, it's not, uh, nothing we do is all that technical and it's about handling people, you know, the way you want to be handled and uh, being honest and working hard and, and doing the right thing. And so you find those people and, and you say, then you help them succeed. So David, you own the company, I assume. And do you have partners now, or and do you share some of the ownership of the company with, with any of the employees that you have? Uh, we do. That was uh, another thing that was uh, important when we set up the company, so that we're not only looking for attributes that I mentioned already, but we're also looking for entrepreneurs. And we're looking for people who, frankly, are motivated by money, because I, I wanted people who want to be successful. And I don't think you should ever apologize for that. Just an aside... The millennials tend to want to apologize for that, or they don't want to admit it now. And I think that's a failing I see in some of them. They want to save the world, and that's great, but you can save the world a lot more if you have a few more resources than if you, uh, than if you don't. Mm-hmm. So I uh, never apologize for that. So finding people that are... Well, you can do both. You can be good, and you can make money. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you can do more good if you're successful, and you can have more assets to solve some of the problems that are out there. So anyway, getting, getting the right compensation system set up for those types of folks. If you say you're hiring the best, well, then you better have a compensation system that rewards them. So we were able to set up a system of, it's used in a lot of, a lot of real estate companies, but maybe we do it maybe more than some, where it's not tied to, their success is not just tied to the company. Their success is tied to their success. And so it's an equal system with everyone here with unequal results. And that's okay with me. It's a fair system. And so compensations and rewards are based on the successes of individual projects. So, you know, there's a lot of luck involved in our business. And some people have been luckier than others. But that's just the way we set it up. And so, yes, we have, uh, have many partners, many, many partners in the mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't want to operate any other way in a business that's, that is this risky, uh, they're basically on the hook and 
they being the folks that are the partners. And so they're uh, doing a lot more worrying than I am at night. What decisions uh, on that vein, then if they have skin in the game, basically, because they're in, in it, what decision-making do they, I mean, at what latitude do you give them as far as making decisions financially as well as on, on, on the job? But my guess is, I'm just going to speculate that you give them a lot of latitude on the, on the project itself, but on major decisions with regard to capital usage, on the, uh, there's a certain limit as what they have the call on. Is that correct? Is that how the way you look at it? So let's say that you've got a, a requirement for a million-dollar investment to you know, move this dirt. And do, do they come to you for that, for that capital decision, or can they make that decision based on company capital? Or what, what, are, what, are, the, what are the constraints on that? And we have a lot of projects going on. So for us right. to be our size, we always have to be working on uh, 50, 60 projects at a time. That's a lot. So wow. I can't keep all that in our head, my head. Uh, our regional managers, you know, Russ Dickens and Karen McJunkin and John Clark and Jim Perry, can't keep it all in their heads either. So we let them have tremendous flexibility and, and control in making day-to-day decisions. And sometimes we'll let them screw up, even though we could say, well, no, you're about to do something stupid. And we just go ahead and let them make some decisions. You got to build experiences for them, right? And you, you stop them going off a cliff. It's like your children. Right, right. <laughs> but you're not going to stop them if they're just going to trip, right? So, but in terms of the big things, we don't buy anything without me knowing about it, period. And I don't really want to sell anything without me knowing about it, period. But that's about my control. <laughs> so just buying and selling is really good. Well, I, you know, I don't want to over, oversimplify it, but basically, yes. We have such good experiences here and such bright people. I don't really need to be telling them whether it should be singles or towns or right. who to sell it to. Or, right. you know, mm-hmm. they're very, very, very experienced. You know, mm-hmm. because of this system we have set up, because of the people that are here and, and hopefully having good uh, personal uh, relations here in the company, we don't have a whole lot of turnover. So we don't have to do a whole lot of training. And so it, that makes things unbelievably more efficient as a business to have almost no turnover. So what's the average tenure of your people here, your senior people? Uh, they're still here. From the, the right. origins almost? Right, right. From really, really hard. Very, 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 very... 20 plus years of yeah. know, experience. Yeah. Very good. A lot of 30s, 30 year, which is good because it's a, it's a complicated business to learn. And as I said, you, I don't really respect people who haven't gone through recessions either. And you need to make some mistakes. So the more you go through a recession and you come out the other side, well, now if you tell me something and you've been through a recession, you understand how bad it can be, I'll sit up and pay attention. Until you've gone through a recession, you're talking to the wall. I'm not, I don't hear what you say because you have no idea how bad it can get. But once you've been there and found out incredibly bad it can get, okay, now you want to do something else? You want to buy that piece of property? Okay. You get it? Yeah, okay, let's do it. You know, and, and when you don't have turnover, then you don't have to worry. You don't have a bunch of rookies around. And so I like not having a lot of rookies around. And I like having good, experienced people who have scars. I don't care how good you are in the land development business you're going to have some, some losers. And we have lost on deals more money than I care to tell you. I mean, it's a massive number. But, okay, we do okay with some others, too. So it all averages out. But I think we probably have more losses as an industry, in the land development industry, than home building or commercial or industrial or retail. 
when it goes bad for us, it goes really bad. So if you're looking at the at the risk reward spectrum in real estate, yes, and I'm holding my hand out like this, yes, and the right hand is the farthest risk reward, and the left is the safest. Close. Yes, yes, you are as close to the right hand as possible as almost any other business. We're actually at the window on the parking lot. We're beyond line. it. Yeah, we're out there. But we know that, right? So that's why we do everything we can do to minimize that strategy. And that's why I was always fascinated about getting in this particular part of the business, uh, land development, because it's if you, you believe business school, you believe risk reward. Why wouldn't you go in the riskiest, especially if you start with nothing? Why wouldn't you go in the, in the most risky, highest reward and just be the best you can, best there is? Yeah. And I believe our company is the best there is at land development, and nobody's even close. So, yes, we have had some miserable failures, but we just said, okay, ouch. Now let's mm-hmm. go do another one. And so we're, we're fine. We're, believe me, we're, we're do, we do quite sure. well. So I'm going to go to a personal story before I go into your personal philosophy. So in 1998, I had a listing on a property called Clarksburg Town Center at the time. It was a master planned project. It was just entitled. And my client was, the, was the, the guy who went through entitlement, which took him eight years to get done. And it was at the same time as the master plan for Clarksburg, Maryland, was being put together in Montgomery County. So personal story, next door, my next door neighbor was a fellow by the name of Bob Metz, who I'm guessing you know. Sure. Bob was uh, with Linus and Blocker and a senior attorney in land development and mm. in land entitlement. Mm. And he was involved with the, the county in dealing with the Clarksburg Town Center master plan. And in fact, I saw him in a presentation. The thing was about the size of a phone book, and he threw it on the table and said, this was unbelievably difficult process <laughs> to go through. So that's a side to the deal that I was working on. So here it is. This is a 236-acre parcel. And I found a, it took me about a six-month marketing process to sell that parcel. And I found a buyer by the name of Terrabrook, which was a company that was uh, owned by Westbrook Partners at the time, major land development or a uh, private equity firm out of New York. And they were the ones that they acquired Reston Town Center, which was a project that Gulf Oil sold to Terrabrook. So that was their big project at the time. And uh, I met with Tom DeLisandro, who was managing that. And I sold, I convinced him that to come into Maryland, why don't you look at this and you can do something. I'm not saying you could do a Reston here, but you can do something here that has, you know, more of a new town type of feeling. And the thought was maybe to do something like Reston or Columbia, but maybe not quite to that scale. So the vision was to do a town center there, quote unquote. And I think the county envisioned that in the master plan to some extent. So we closed on the deal and they started building. And one of the projects in the center of the project was the actual town center, which was the retail and the higher density use, which apparently originally was designed to be more or less like Friendship Heights as opposed to you know, much more dense urban than really what the market was delivering. And I had the project under contract with Regency Centers, mm-hmm. who was a large national retail REIT to develop the shopping center. And the, the concept was, let's just do a giant anchored grocery store center. And then eventually, once that critical mass is there, we can do some other things. Well, the town, as they were starting to sell home, 
the, the homeowners association decided, hey, this is not going to be, this is not what we envisioned. We thought this would be much higher IRN, more like Bethesda, you know, or Reston or something like that. And my friend at Regency said, you know, we've done this twice now. We've had a contract and we tried to get it through. We went back the second time. We're done. We finished. We can't do it. So they decided to quit. And then Newlands became the owner of the property as Cherubrook sold the company. And Newlands comes from a California basis and their thought process is a little different. So as time goes on, thing, you know, and then separately, there were some issues with regard to restrictions on the homes that were built and setbacks and a few other zoning issues that occurred. With, so then the project became very controversial. So then, and maybe I'll let you pick it up from here, because I, what I understand, and I, I kind of lost track as things kind of went awry, I just knew that it was a real hornet's nest there, that Newlands eventually realized that this is not going to really work. So what I understand is that you bought the property for a dollar. Is that correct? That's and, correct. Okay. So take me from what I just said into the, into the next part of the story, if, if, if you can take it from there based on what your knowledge of the situation was. Uh, yeah, actually, it's, uh, it goes back to some things we've already talked about. Is, uh, it gets into our experience and our reputation. That was a very awkward time for uh, the politicians, for the planning staff, for the planning board. It was a, basically a nuclear explosion went off in all planning throughout the entire county. So it was a very bad thing. People got fired. Uh, there was newspaper reporters trying to win a Pulitzer Prize. I mean, it was as bad as it gets in terms of a mess, a complete total mess, totally overblown. So times went by. Uh, it needed to be fixed. Uh, new ones, uh, and I give them credit. Nobody else ever has, but I give them credit for realizing they were not the ones to fix it. They had been painted with too bad of a, a brush in terms of PR. So they did the right thing, which is, let's see if I can get a local guy to fix this thing. And they didn't have to do that. They could have just shut it down and pulled it out 30 years ago. But they didn't. And so they looked across the street. We were right across the street and said, would you guys come do this? And we said, yes, but there is no value. And uh, what we had to do in terms of improvements and the commitments had been made to some homeowners and some other things, it, it was underwater. Could you explain you know, where it was at the time that you, they first approached you and you know, what the situation was and what you bought into, just out of curiosity, if you remember what, the, what those were details were? Unfortunately, I didn't remember everything about it, but they had had a settlement with a working group of folks over at the homeowners, and it was a very limited number of homeowners, but they still reached a settlement, and they committed to things that they shouldn't have committed to, and they, uh, they said they would do a community design that was totally unmarketable, and it took several years of marketing to prove it was unmarketable. So wake up, they had this issue, it's not going to go forward. And that's so was the, the subdivision about 50% done at that point? Uh, probably, as as probably 70% done. 70% done. And the commercial done. hadn't been started that's correct. at that that's time. Correct. We were asked to come in by them, and then uh, we went and checked with the politicians to make sure they wanted us to fix it. And because it was a thorn in everybody's side, and we said we would tackle it uh, only if they wanted us to, because we didn't need a hit to our reputation, and but we could fix it. Got to give us the time, and we'll go fix it. 
So it took us a number of years of negotiating and trying to get all parties to be happy. We didn't make everybody happy, but we did make enough people happy to be able to write the ship and to finish the improvements that were important to folks and make it become alive again. And this is moving along. So we're in process now of uh, finishing up the last couple hundred houses, probably halfway through. And uh, we are uh, reworked the retail area and are trying to, to uh, market the center now and find a grocery store so we can build a town center. Uh, it's still a grocery-oriented uh, center, as are all uh, suburban centers. And so um, the grocery uh, market is in a little bit of turmoil right now, right. For, especially for suburban sites. So we haven't been unsuccessful to date, but we are making progress. So I think it's a pretty good story. And I think that the, that I'll pat ourselves on the back. I don't think many other firms would have been able to been given the time and the politicians and planning staff to fix, to fix it. And I think they in general believe we could. Okay, David. So let, let's talk a little bit about uh, your personal philosophies a little bit and your kind of your life priorities uh, individually, you know, and what's important to you and how you balance your work life, your family life, and, and your giving back to the community and how you do that. Well, I think everybody's got a different approach to it. Hopefully everybody has, finds their own balance of those three things that they're comfortable with. I certainly have. I've um, tried to keep working perspective. It's not uh, the be-all, end-all. You know, when Bill and I were really talking about the company early on, we decided we didn't want to live on airplanes. We wanted to be home at night with our families. So that was from the get-go, to not mess up our family life with work. So we only did jobs, and still to this day, only do jobs uh, two hours in a car from this office. Mm -hmm. And we won't go anywhere else because of that commitment to family. And obviously, it's a big market. We don't need to go anywhere else. But, but the, the green fields are now more than two hours away. You have to go to West Virginia now. Other or, places, right. Yeah. So, you know, it is a balance, but hopefully it's something that, that I've made the right kind of decisions in terms of uh, balance. Don't let work get too much in the way of other things, of family, family time and obligations. Uh, two of my sons are now in the company uh, working. Great. Yeah, it's actually very nice. I enjoy that quite a bit. Um, other sons in Tyson's, so they're all families all here. And I've uh, got grandkids now, so that's, uh, that's important. Uh, in terms of the other giving back, I've always tried to, certainly in my starting at uh, late 30s, put a lot of time back into first the industry because you need to do that. Mm -hmm. If you're in the industry, you need to support the industry through you know, home builders and going through the, the leadership chain there and, and then ULI and some other things that had to do specifically with our industry to try and help out and give back to industries that have been good to you. And it's, um, that's very rewarding because you are, you're making that industry that you're a part of uh, that much more efficient and, and uh, teaching so next generations can do a better job. And then I do things for our universities that I went to and different volunteer uh, organizations that I've been able to, to help with. Uh, in general, I tend to do things that, um, where I have some expertise. Uh, I understand organizations that just want more money, and that's fine. But i probably a little more drawn to those where I can make more of a difference than just writing checks. Any examples? Right now, I'm on the um, board of trustees at Georgia Tech and um, been highly involved with their real estate decisions, trying to help the university there. 
the same thing in North Carolina. I have not today, but I've been on their real estate advisory board for a long time. So those are some specifics where I've, I've done some things that are in, you know, inside of my expertise, uh, along with you know financial support. So it's um, you, you never know exactly where you can make the most difference and and help out. Um, and sometimes it's just better just to let you know give financial support and get out of people's way who really knows what they're what they're talking about. So I do that too. So let's uh, let's talk about your your biggest wins, your your toughest losses, and perhaps the most surprising things that happened to you in your career. You know, my biggest win, obviously, be honest with you, is was nineteen seventy eight when I in a sheer period of about a month. Figured out what industry I was going to work on, which company I was going to work for, and met the cute co-ed I was going to end up marrying. So, all in one year. All, well, in about one month. Wow. So that was kind of that was my big win. Sort of set the direction for my life uh, in a very short period of time. Because at that point, you're finishing school, you can well go all a million different ways. So in that 30 day period or so, um, that was my big win. Picking the right in, the, what I could for me now looking back, the right industry. Definitely the right company, uh, the right p- people to be associated with, and the right, right person girl. to spend my yeah my, my life with. So that was my big win. If I had to, you know, it's hard to screw up my life after after that month. I pretty much had it nailed, and so that's that's uh, was a big win. Very lucky, you know. Losses. Um, loss. Talking financially or non financially or anything, you know, your life. Let's say, you know, um, I've certainly been very lucky with life. I don't even remotely worry about financial losses. Mm-hmm. As I say, that's part of my business. I, I you understand I, it. Well, I, it's, it's, it's like breathing. We're going to get killed on some projects. <laughs> and if I let that bother me, I'd be in a cave, you know, right now. I can't, I can't worry about it. So, okay. And as I said before, you know, when Bill and I were setting this up, it's like, well, that's why we don't want to use a lot of people's equity. It's like we, we both look at each other going, boy, that was stupid. What did we do that for? And and so that's um, and then you shrug your shoulders and move on. So that kind of losses, financial losses. Um, well, what about time? I mean, or devoting your energies into something that you all of a sudden you said, "Oh man, why did I do that?" <laughs> I think the, the the collapse of and I had to bring this up again, but the 90, 91, 92 recession, yeah, the collapse of the financial industry as I knew it, and basically the biggest real estate. Depression right. uh, since 1930, that was a loss. Yeah, I mean that was a real gut check punch. You had to use all your wits to keep going uh, and keep the organization together. Keep the relationships. I have no idea how we met payroll in that time frame. I have yeah. no idea. Looking back now, it's like how do we survive that? Yeah. Just like I look back at the 92 and go, excuse me, 82, and go, how did we pay 24 and a half percent? Right. On our development loans. Yeah. How do we do that? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure now. You know, <laughs> T bills are our 10 year treasury hit 1.25 yes. yesterday, and we were paying 24.5% for our money. I'm not quite sure how we made it through 91 and 92, but that was a tough a, period. A tough period. That was a, you know, I sort of lost my stomach at that point and I had to quit drinking real coffee, and, and that was tough. That yeah. was real tough. Never want to do that again. Yeah, but it sounds like you. You learned from that experience, and now it built up enough of a cushion in your financial situation such that I don't care what happens, unless it's a nuclear explosion, I'm going to be okay, I think, over time. So 
Yeah, you know, another thing too that was probably the the, the worst thing about that was we had to lay off fifteen uh, percent of our company, and right. that just you know I've had to do that twice now in my career. We're not quite. That was the worst, and had to do another one in uh, two thousand eight. I hate that. That is just the worst part of being in business for yourself. All these people that you've talked to, you like, you support, and and they're doing a great job, and they're working at everything they can do, but you just can't you can't carry them, and that is that's awful. That's an awful thing, and and so we go to great lengths here not to hire people because we are a, a cyclical organization, and so. When things do hit, though, uh, we are all hands on deck. So we're we're looking for new opportunities. We're trying to fix things that are that are busted. We're sticking fingers in the dikes to stop the stop the bleed. Uh, hopefully, we're past that. But I'll tell you, that's those are two times where I didn't feel good about myself having to, having to uh, to lay people off. I don't take that lightly at all. What about a surprise? Something that just came out of a meteor out of the sky kind of thing that happened to you that might be of, of interest to the listeners here. You know, we're surprised all the time with the success of some of our projects. You know, we basically are dreamers and more than most careers. Sure. Because every time we do a product, it's different. So we, you know, we carefully sew this flag and we run out the flagpole. And sometimes people don't salute and it's awful. And other times it, it, we're just blown away with how successful things are. So I guess that's why we we really believe that we're not as smart as people think we are when things are going great. And we're not near as stupid as people think we are during recession. We're doing the same thing every day. We kind of work every day and try as hard as we can. But we take no credit for the some of our great successes and um, some of our failures. They just happen to be that way. That's mm-hmm. that's the if you can't stomach that, this is the wrong wrong business for you. And we and we we certainly know people and have people in our organization that just aren't comfortable with this. It's a it's a little odd. It's a weird kind of business to be able to have to accept losses and failures. And but that's just part of it. You got to be able to just say, okay, move on to the next one. My sense of this business, you know, because I never was in it per se, and I was more in the income producing business so a little more steady as she goes thing whereas it's just you know your business it's just all in rush 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 and then just wait till the sales occur and then okay then you know this and or you just get overwhelmed with demand it's like how do you manage it it's like ah. <laughs> and then suddenly it's just dead there's just nothing and it's just you know kind of just but, but you, I'm, I'm 65 now, so um, I'm getting asked a lot, when am I going to retire? You're 65, that's a normal kind of thing. You think sure. about. When I sort of stumble through my answer, it usually is, I'm having too much fun. I love the way we do. I do. I love the organization. I love the industry. I think what we're doing is, is good for humanity, no matter what other people think. I think building housing and communities is fascinating, and it's, 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 it has to be done, and we got people, you know, being born and moving here, and we got to do what we do, and we're good at it, and it's fun. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to keep doing it for a while. Now, obviously, I've got an organization that I can walk away uh, for a few weeks, and people don't even know I'm not here, right? right? They're so good. And so that certainly helps, but I enjoy the challenges of what we do, and it's changing every day, and I like our work product, 
and I'm proud of what we do. So Great. I'll keep doing it for keep a while. Going. Yeah, so why not? You're healthy and you're having fun. So uh, what would you tell your 25-year-old self today? Here's what I would tell myself. When NVR came out of bankruptcy, take every nickel you can beg, borrow, steal, and buy it at $10 a share. <laughs> okay. I would have made more money right. doing that and never going to work again. Because mm-hmm. it's, what, it's $3,500 a share or something now? Mm-hmm. 350%. Not mm-hmm. bad. Right. But no, then I would have missed the I would have missed the whole ride. So I'm not no regrets. But that was I was right there. I was in the in the in the mix and as good a run up of appreciation and an explosion of a company that Dwight ran. Could you foresee that though? You know, I, I it was it was interesting. Back in the eighties and seventies, and it's like the recession of eighty one, it was hard. Right? It was very hard. We're just getting going. We're paying our 24% interest. interest. rates were killer. So it was, it was really like, what am I doing here? And, and it's, I'm not making any money. I'm barely, you know, it's just awful. Everything's bad. And I look around at the people that I was associated with and the people that were, I was with, and I go, this is, these guys are phenomenal. This is the right place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's really not good now. Okay, this isn't fun. I'm not having fun. I'm not making any money. But wow, what an opportunity. And look at the people I'm with. And it's like, well, that's, and let's just keep doing it. And, you know, it all did work out. But, you know, it was, um, so could I have foreseen it? Yeah, I believed in those people that were, you right. know, a very small group. And I believed. I really, I was all in. And I was right. So you have two sons working for you now. What do you, what would you, what do you, what, you know, they were, as they were making decisions on what they wanted to do, what did you tell them? I mean, obviously they fought their, all their whole life. They've seen you go through your ups and downs and all that. And they've seen, oh my God, dad, how do you do this? And. So what? How did? How did? What did you tell them when they were thinking about coming in this? Business? Well, first they, we didn't talk about it for years. They went to work for other companies. We got out of, out of college, and, okay. uh, uh-huh. and then they went back and got uh, their MBAs, right? And they joined us after that. So they'd have uh, a, a bunch of real world experiences before they they came in. Although, well, well, just an aside, I will tell you they both work in the the income property side. Okay, I'm okay. just not sure. I can tell a relative to go to work in the idiotic business of the land of <laughs> um, it's now they would obviously but it's uh it's not for everybody the income properties that you, your world you came from is a much more sane uh, existence and sane uh, insane career and yeah it's just well obviously you have you can mitigate risk a lot easier <laughs> land is awfully hard to to do something with, and it's certainly not liquid. So, borrowing money on raw grand is almost impossible, even in even in the easiest times. So, we we think we've got it figured out. But the thing that also is interesting: every session is different. Yes. So, what's going to bring the next session on? Is it going to be this virus that's floating around? Is that going to throw us into recession? You know, who knows? So, it's never boring. No, it's never boring, and it's going to happen. So, it's just a matter of when and and what's it going to look like, and and we're all going to get through it. David, anything else you'd like to tell the listeners? Uh, any advice that you'd give uh, young people in the business today uh, as they're thinking about it? More or less, you just said, I'm not sure anybody should really be optimistic about the land development business, but uh, what, what do you think? I think real, estate's, uh, real estate as an industry is fantastic. I really am excited about it. I love to see 
younger folks getting into the business. I think it's a, a it needs to be done. It needs to be done correctly. I think we're getting much better as an industry. When I started, it was a, a lot more seat of the pants. You know, a lot of guys didn't get through high school. It was just a uh, it was cowboys. It's not cowboys now. This is hardcore business. Highly trained, highly professional, uh, high integrity, extremely educated, hardworking people. This is a real legitimate career and real legitimate industry, even though universities don't quite get it yet in terms of uh, mm-hmm. this is a, but the people in the industry know it. And so it's a, I deal I, in our competition and uh, the, our customers and everybody, the level of professionalism in our industry is so much better. So I highly recommend real estate as a career. It's just been, it's been a lot of fun. You know, that's something else too we don't talk a whole lot about. It is a lot of fun, and it gets me to all these interesting people and go to different kind of aspects every day. It's, I don't get bored with it. I mean, it's just great fun. You talk to a bank one day, and you're down testifying on some uh, zoning case the next day, and you're mm-hmm. whatever. It's just great. You're talking to a farmer the next day. Right. What, what a great – I mean, how many other businesses can you, can you do that? We're very lucky to be working in this industry, and, and especially looking forward – I mean, you truly look at it, we're right on the cutting edge of a major issue with the nation in terms of um, uh, more housing. And yes. it's not going to go away. And so the people that, that, wanna, that can fix it correctly are the practitioners in our industry. It's not the politicians. No. That's just all nonsense, absolute nonsense. They throw a number on the board and they go, let's hit that number. Well, they have no, no idea. Now, they set a target. That's great. But then they got to come to practitioners to actually say, okay, here's how we can do it. Right. And they got to listen to us. So there's plenty of opportunity for younger folks to come into the industry and make an impact on the world, do good, and make money and have fun. So that's, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. On that note, David, thank you very you much bet. for thank your you time. We really appreciate good. it. Thanks, John. Thanks. Take care.